greet you this morning in Jesus' name. It's good to be here. And uh, I want to just begin by letting you know how much I appreciate your efforts and the hard work that was put together for the auction and uh, the supper Friday night. We really, really enjoyed it. This was um, a very, very pleasant event for us. And I, yeah, you really do amazing here. This, this is an amazing team of people, and I'm just thoroughly impressed with how you work together and how much you enjoy working together, how you get the kids involved, and how they actually seem to enjoy it, too. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> it's really, really good to see. Uh, obviously, there's a history to your auction here that uh, someone has continued to carry through to keep uh, your group of people here connected, involved, and supporting. And from the receiving end at Christian Aid Ministries, I just want you to know that we really do appreciate your efforts. And I uh, want to say God bless you. Thank you. And I want to echo what Hannah said earlier that, you know, there's a lot more to it than just uh, getting together, selling a few items, making some food. You're, you're leaving an incredible impression in the community. The joy of serving, the way the kids brought um, drinks around at the tables and took the trays away and served at the food lines and all of those kind of things are leaving an impression on the community. The people that come here who don't know Jesus see that. They see something different in the way that you're living. And, and, and uh, it's, I want to tell you, it's really, really good. And I think um, it's encouragement to us, it's a blessing to us. And uh, I want to thank you for it. If you have Bibles, you can open those to Matthew 5. And I want to camp there for a bit this morning. Um, the title of the message that I have this morning is You Have Heard. And it's taken from uh, Matthew 5, where Jesus, in a number of different situations, uses that phrase. You have heard how it was said to you in the past. Now, I, I never know what you can see there. Am I in the way? Would it be better if I'd step off? Is this okay? It's okay? All right? All right. Then I'll stay put. Um, so in Matthew chapter 5, there's some really, really interesting pieces of Scripture here. Stay there. I'm going to just shift back to Leviticus chapter 24 and get a bit of context uh, on on the the scripture here in Leviticus chapter 24, there's something really interesting that happens here. In Leviticus 24, uh, there's a woman that's named Shelomith that comes uh, that has a son, and her son blasphemes God and curses God. And this, of course, gets the attention of Moses and the people, and they get together and make an attempt to figure out how to deal with that type of situation. Pretty serious situation. Blasphemes and curses God. And evidently, at that point, there wasn't a law on exactly what to do with that kind of person. So they put him in custody. Uh, he is brought to Moses. He's put into custody, and the Bible says he's there until the will of the Lord is clear. Until it's obvious what God wants them to do. And God tells Moses in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus 24, he says that this man, what he did, uh, he should be stoned for what he did. Now, now, I think the purpose of this law and other similar, similar laws... I want to be careful how I say this, but in, in many ways, I'm, I'm not always sure. I mean, obviously the laws were there so people would keep them. But remember that God knew and understood that they couldn't keep them. They weren't going to be able to keep them. And in the end, uh, the laws were more to point people to their sins and help them to see their sins than anything else. And I'm not saying that the people were, weren't supposed to keep the law. Obviously they were. But the truth also was that God knew they couldn't. And you know, we're really in the same situation today. Any law that's out there that God has commanded us is not a law that we can keep. It's not. And you know yourself that 
we consistently break those laws. And, and yet, uh, Jesus came to show us a better way. And I want to look at that just briefly here this morning. From this event in Leviticus 24, a law is established. And that law was to be fracture for fracture, eye for eye, and tooth for tooth. And so that's where that concept comes from, dealing with the sins of the people. When you break someone's tooth, one of your teeth was going to be affected. When you take somebody's life, that meant your life was to be affected. If you gouged out somebody's eye, your eye was going to go. It had to. It was just the process of the law. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. That seems really brutal, uh, except it is what God did to establish and impress upon the minds of the people the seriousness of sin. And that sin had to be dealt with. And of course, there were then the, the sacrifices that were established and all of that later. Now, if you shift back to uh, Matthew uh, 25, or Matthew 5, what happens now is Jesus comes into the picture here in Matthew 5. And his teaching completely changes, completely changes what was what was in the Old Testament. And I, I've often wondered, you know, what was it that, how must the children of Israel, how must the, and obviously the Jews struggled with this whole teaching because he took and completely rearranged teaching uh, as they knew it. So in Matthew 5, um, he says, You have heard that it was uh, said by them in old times. And in verse 27, he talks about adultery. If you go to, to Matthew 5, verse 27, if I can find it here, he speaks about adultery. You heard that it was said unto them, you shall not, not commit adultery, but I say unto you, and he introduces something new in this chapter. In verse 31, he deals with divorce. In the Old Testament, it was okay to divorce if you wanted to. And Jesus said, but I say unto you, and introduces a new concept and a new principle. In verse 33, it's swearing of oaths. In verse 38, it's an eye for an eye. Look at it. In verse 38, you heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, do not resist the one who is evil, or do not push back against the one who is evil. Uh, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, just go the second. Go with him an extra mile. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You know, it, it doesn't. It doesn't show a video here of how the people reacted to that. But can you imagine when Jesus said this? It was like in the past, if he gouged out your eye, his eye was going to be taken care of. Now he's saying, if he slaps you on the one side, then turn the other cheek and let him hit that one too. And it's like the people must have... Horrified at what Jesus was saying. How can this be possible? How does this even make sense? And I, I really wondered, as, as you read this sometimes, in, you, and sometimes we read these kind of things over and over and over again, so that, yeah, okay, that's that, and that, yep, that's what it, yeah, so you, we have this memorized, and we don't stop to think just how this really must have sat with the Jews, and how, how, how they must have looked at this, like this is, not only is it completely contrary to what they had heard, but it's, how are you going to do that, okay? So you're, you're telling me now that instead of uh, retaliation or instead of him taking responsibility for what he did to me now, I'm supposed to just turn the other cheek. I mean, how is that even fair? How many times have you heard that, right? How, is that, how many times have you said that, right? Or at least felt that. How is that even fair? And you know, a lot of what Jesus' teaching was, was just exactly that kind of teaching. Um, how, how is it even fair? How it is even right? And, you know, I don't know. You know, it isn't so much about what is fair and what is right. 
It's more about what God wants us to do in this world and how we want to live. Verse 30, 43 then, it's hating your enemy. And I want to look at this one too because um, I, I don't think we do just real well with this one. I shouldn't say we, sorry. I included you in a struggle that I have. I don't do well with this concept of loving those who hate me and doing good back to those who, who misuse and mistreat me. But in verse 43, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, You should love your enemy and love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? So what? Do not even the tax collectors the same? I mean, even the tax collectors, think about it. The hated, despised tax collectors loved people that loved them. They do that. I mean, if, if you know, if that's anybody can love your neighbor and hate your enemy, basically what he said. That doesn't really take a lot of, um, yeah, that anyone can do that. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And then he says something that has always startled me, really. He says, You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. And when we come to this point of this part of the passage, we just want to say, Okay, that's it. I'm done. There's no way that I can be perfect as, as your heavenly father is perfect. You want me to be like God? You want me to live in perfection? Like how in the world? Could, and, and a lot of people check out at that point and say, well, okay, he doesn't mean be perfect. He must mean something else. And even some people will say, well, that's just for another age, another time. It's coming down the road. That's going to be in the future sometime when, when, uh, the new millennium, then, then we need to be, then we need to respond like this here. Okay. In each situation here, as Jesus brings, uh, these comments in, one of the things that you notice is that in the Old Testament it was here. In the New Testament, it's up here. He, he raises the bar. And it's from that concept that we say that the Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament, are not on the same plane. We, we live with an elevated Testament. We live with a higher standard. We live with a higher bar The move that's been moved up for us. And it's a completely different era, a different time. Okay? Now, now before all of that looks way too difficult... For you and impossible, just stick with me and hang in there and we'll see more. But what Jesus says here is, now I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And then he says, why? He says that you may be the sons of your father in heaven. Okay, so... We want to be the sons of our Father in heaven, right? We want to be his children because there are blessings that are there, okay? And this is, this is why we do what we do. This is why we live like we live, so that we may be the sons of God. We want to be the sons of our Father in heaven. And he says too, if you only love those who love you, how are you different than others? And, you know, you, you, think, you think about it. So, as Christian people in the world, to just react the way everybody else around us reacts leaves what kind of impression on the rest of the world? Not, it's just like, you're just like everybody else at that point, right? When you do something unusual and reach out to help another person, especially someone who maybe has mistreated you or misused you or said something against you, if that's the kind of person that you're going to reach out and help and reach down to, to, to give a hand to, this 
is completely different now. You're doing something that's very unique and unusual because anybody out there in the world can love their, love their people that love them. But when we turn and love people that hate us and care about people that despise us and mistreat us, there's, there's something in that message. Uh, many of you are familiar with the event in at Nickel Mines in uh, Pennsylvania that happened about two miles from where our church is. Uh, there was a schoolroom where a group of students were having a very pleasant day in school, October the 2nd, uh, 2006, I think it was. Um, what, would, what would that be, 17 years ago, something like that. We just had one of those men, uh, fathers from, from those, that group of girls actually speak at our church um, and, and share a bit about his story. Last Sunday evening, just a week ago, we were, had already left home, so we weren't there, but were able to listen to a portion of it on our travels. But what happened there was absolutely horrible. A man stepped into a schoolroom and began to shoot and, and killed a number of children. And the father that came to our church was the father of Rosanna. Rosanna is now uh, 23 uh, she was, she was, the, the family was told very soon after the event that there is absolutely no way that, that she's going to survive. She had a bullet that went straight through her brain, entered one side and went right through the back of her brain and came out the other side. She's still alive today. She's 23. She's an invalid, basically, is not able to do anything for herself. The family completely takes care of her and does so willingly. They really do. They take care of her in a beautiful way. But the testimony from the Amish community that reached around, reached around the world, the idea of forgiveness and them reaching out and letting the community and the world know that they really hold nothing against them was an incredible testimony of forgiveness. It was doing exactly what Jesus says here that we should do. So we know it's possible, right? We know you can do that. But we've known some of the families there and we know how hard that has been. It's not been an easy road for that. Many of those families have really, really struggled. Uh, forgiveness and responding with forgiveness in those kind of situations is, is very, very difficult. You don't just do it one time. Think about it. This family gets up every single day and sees the result of that shooter in their daughter every single day. She should be a young mother at this point, married with children. Could be, at least. She's an invalid, depending on someone else to take care of her instead. And so the parents, they do what they do gladly, but they see the results of that. And it's my guess that they battle with that concept of forgiveness every single day that they, that they live. If you have a good relationship with your brothers, so what? So you get along with people in the church here. That's great. You know, we even struggle with that. That, that. The truth of it is that we have conflicts in our own brotherhood. People that we live alongside are Christians. We're Christians. We should love them. We should care about them. But even then we struggle, right? Even with our own brothers and sisters, we have some of our own uh, struggles. So um, anyone can do that. And Jesus is calling us to go yet another notch higher and love those that hate us and do good to those who persecute us. And I'm not here to say how to do it. Much of this is something that I've struggled with in my own life. I'm only here to say that this is what the gospel teaches. This is what Jesus teaches us to do. And as we struggle through these circumstances in our lives and simply do what God calls, I'm just trying to remind us this morning that God wants us to love others around us, even those that are difficult, even those that hate us. And then I want to look a bit at uh, others around the world. Now this, and, and how we can love others, uh, even our enemies today. Now this concept of perfection, I want to just look at this very briefly, then I'm going to give you some pictures and stories and a bit of what Cam has been doing uh, recently around the world. But this idea of perfection, 
where, where Jesus said, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, is something that I've struggled with for many, many years. How is that even possible? Because I know I haven't accomplished that. I know I haven't uh, been able to do that. And I have wondered for many years, what really did he mean by that? What does Jesus mean? And I finally have concluded that Paul said it as well as we can say it. If you look at Philippians chapter, I believe it's chapter 3. I might have the verse up here. I do. 3 verse 12. Philippians, turn there if you can. Philippians 3 verse 12, I think says it about as well as, as I know how to say it. Where the Apostle Paul said, it's not that I have already obtained or am already perfect. So he's saying exactly what, I mean, this is the concept. Jesus said, be perfect like God is perfect. And Paul is saying, I'm not. I'm not. And some of you would like to stop there and just say, great, we don't have to be after all. (laughs) Right? No, it's not what the Apostle Paul says. He says this, as he continues the verse, he says, but I press on. To make it my own. See if I can get the rest of those verses here. Um, Verse, what is it? Verse 12. Verse 12. Not that I have already, already attained, obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, what that's saying simply is that as we have come to Jesus and made him a part of our lives, received Him into our lives, recognized our sinfulness, our undoneness, our need for Him. Something that every last one of us needs to do. And and you'll... So I, I did this for years where I struggled along and, and okay, so I know I, know I, needed, I, I, needed, I need to be better. Uh, my mouth gets me in trouble. I do things to my brothers and sisters that I shouldn't. Mom and Dad don't like it. I struggle with thoughts and attitudes and I I need to do better. All right, so I'm going to start making sure every day I read the Bible. And so I read a verse. Great. Even prayed. Good. Next night, same thing. Two in a row. Really doing good here. At the end of the week, you get to a point where you, uh, okay, you skip the day. How many of you have done this? I'm probably not the only one who's gone through this, right? And... And you fall back into many of those kinds of struggles. And it wasn't until I was willing to say, okay, God, I know that in my heart I can never do this on my own. And just simply confess my sins and my need for God and cry out to God for help and ask him to come in and take charge. It was then that I was able to not live perfectly. I still am not able to do that. But I'm pressing on. I'm with the Apostle Paul. I'm going to keep going. I'm pushing on. And it isn't ever that you're going to be perfect. That isn't even the point, I don't think. The point is, which way are you going? Which way are you pressing? Which way are you pushing? What is your passion? What is your goal? Where are you going? And I I say this for young people especially, because uh, we have a dearth of young people who are passionate about God. And I like what I see here, where your people are involved. They're here. They're connected to the church. They're working. They're helping with the church. That's great. That's good. I don't know that that's enough, though. And I don't know your heart, so I'm not here to criticize. Don't misunderstand me. But if you're here today and have never come to a point where you said, listen, I want God in charge. I want God in control. I'm willing to just simply give it all to him. Take that step. And I think you'll find that your life... And this isn't just for young people, this is for all of us. Take that step, and I think you'll see that you'll not be perfect, and you'll still struggle, but you'll find that you're not alone in the struggle. That God is there, and helps you to do some of the impossible things that he's asking you to do, and to live as he would want you to live. The Apostle Paul says, I know I'm not there. But that's my goal. That's where I'm going. That, that's my prize. I'm shooting for that. That's my target. Uh, that's where I'm going. And I think that's where we want to be. And this is a goal that you won't accomplish today, unless it's the end of your time here. 
you won't accomplish in the next year. This is something that is a goal that you're going to have to press for and push for as long as you're here, as long as we're here. And the beauty of all of this is that God in his grace is okay with that. He really is. He's okay uh, with our struggles. He's okay with our uh, pain and difficulty. He's okay when we come to a point where we say, I messed up. I shouldn't have done it. I said something I shouldn't have. I reacted in a way that I shouldn't. He's okay with that. And he just wants us to keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pressing on and keep uh, going for the goal. All right, let's look at some ways that we can love our enemies. This is really what I want to talk about here this morning. Just a few ways that as we look around the world and minister to people around the world, I want to just give you a bit of a picture of what CAM is all about. And um, I might leave it open for questions at the end if you have questions. Um, but I want to just, just look at some projects that CAM has. And I want you to think about this, that there are enemies in our world. There are people that oppose... Um, Christian people. We live in a time when Christians are uh, being marginalized and there's a lot of struggle and pain. Places like India, for example, where uh, governments are uh, making definite decisions against Christianity and churches in, in those countries. Um, places like Afghanistan. I'll talk about that in just a minute, where there's uh, an obvious push against Christians, where it's probably one of the most difficult places in the world to exist as a Christian. Um, there's struggle in those countries. This picture here is a picture of some distribution of um, hygiene kits in Yemen. And there's a story that goes with it. There's a mother who was... Um, Living in Yemen, she had been displaced by the war. There's been a seven-year civil war now in Yemen. Basically, two Muslim groups that are locking horns and fighting against each other and creating a lot of um, civil unease and disruption in the country. War, actually, conflict. And many thousands, hundreds of thousands have been displaced. Some of those Christians. And we have contacts in Djibouti, which is a small African country just across uh, just straight west from Yemen, and, and that contact has been in and out of Yemen on a regular basis recently. In fact, we've uh, had just two weeks ago, three weeks ago, there were several of our men, our staff, that traveled to Yemen to do some investigation into the country. But there was a, a young woman who was in a refugee camp, had been pushed away from home, uh, was in a situation where her husband wasn't taking care of her or the children. Uh, could likely have been a second marriage situation. Wouldn't have been uncommon at all in the culture. Um, but she was extremely discouraged, struggling to survive, had almost nothing, and was longing for just some basic things like a washcloth and a bar of soap and even something as simple as a fingernail clippers. And she went to another woman that she knew and just asked her if there isn't something that she can do for her that she could earn some money. Can I wash your clothes or something like that? And told her of some of the struggles that she's going through. This other person she talked to, her husband, actually was part of a distribution program through our connections, through our contacts and found out about the need and was able to take several hygiene kits and give them to this family. Now, this is distribution of one of those kits. I can't say that this is the exact woman. I don't know that. But uh, in these kits, they're wrapped in a towel, and inside are a washcloth, a handkerchief, a bar of soap, shampoo, a toothpaste, toothbrush, a comb, deodorant, and a fingernail clipper. And some of the very basic things that this woman was wishing she had, she received through something so simple. Now, when she did so, this was her response. She said, the overwhelming joy I experienced upon receiving the bag and discovering its contents cannot be put into words. All I can say is that I glimpsed the kindness of a compassionate soul who understood our struggles. All she was given 
was a hygiene kit that you could have put together for about $10. And it brought this kind of response. You'd think she won the lottery or someone gave her $10,000 or built her a new house or something like that. All she got was a hygiene kit and she had this kind of response. Now, if I would bring one of those along and hand it out to you today, you would take it. You should. It would be generous of you to accept the gift. You would even say thank you because you should. But it wouldn't it wouldn't create this kind of response from you because it would really be meaningless to you. Everything in that kit is something you have at home. If you don't have it at home, you can go to Walmart and buy it tomorrow if you need to or the next day. And it's meaningless to us. And I can see as I say this here that most of you are like, big deal. So what? No, you're with me, I'm sure. But seriously, something so simple created this type of response. It's hard to imagine. And to picture that we could ever get to a place in our lives where something like this would create this kind of response. But it's certainly true for many people in our world. This is a picture of distribution in Afghanistan. Cam has some really, really good contacts in Afghanistan and have been able to reach into the country. COVID created some tremendous struggles for Afghanistan. Thousands of people lost their businesses and their jobs during COVID. COVID, and not, it, for, for Afghanistan, it wasn't the disease, although the disease was deadly there for sure, like it was everywhere else. But it was the lockdowns that created so much suffering and ongoing suffering for many of the people. For us here, I don't know what lockdowns were like for you out here. There was a couple of weeks where we worked from the house. Our schools were closed. Pretty soon it was the end of the school year, so it wasn't that big a deal. We skipped church for a few weeks. You probably did too. But we were soon back to normal. And other than wearing a mask when you went into a doctor's office or to a Walmart or somewhere like that, and that kind of frustration and aggravation, other than that, life was... Pretty soon, pretty normal for us, right? Not in places like Afghanistan. Over there, lockdowns continued for a year or more. In India, for two years. Two solid years. And lockdowns, for those people, meant no one out of the house unless you're going after food. And if you were out of the house when you weren't supposed to be, police were there to make sure that you understood why laws were made. Um, Afghanistan has now gone through last year an earthquake and a flood. This year, several earthquakes, including one early this morning in Afghanistan. A pretty serious earthquake the last week or so. They've had a number of them, uh, 6.0, and this morning's earthquake over there was 6.3, I think, something like that. So some real serious issues are going on over there on top of the already pretty critical struggles that they've had. One of the things that we can do when we go to Afghanistan is very quietly and very gently just let people know that it's Christians in the West that are helping them. And as those kind of rumors spread through the people, it's like, wow, we didn't think Christians in the West cared about us. And where are the Muslims? Why aren't the Muslim people helping us? And when they see that God's people care, it's it's beautiful to see the results, and we know that people are coming to Christ as a result of the distribution. Syria. Syria has a long history of war and conflict. Uh, the Syria crisis is now in its 13th year. It started with the Arab Spring in 2011. Um, and what's happened here has just been unreal to imagine. Millions have been displaced. Um, so you have, the numbers are yeah, they, they can, let me just try to give you the, the numbers in, in, uh, in Syria. So prior to the war, there were about 22 million people in the country. And about half of those were displaced or pushed out of their homes now because of the war. Some of those have been able to get back to their homes, but very a small amount of those, a tiny fraction of those people have been able to get back to, to their homes. Most remain displaced and are living in these kind of conditions. Some of them have been there for 10 years in these kinds of situations. Now, of the 11 or 12 million, about half that that was displaced, about half of those, or somewhere around five and a half to six million people, 
are refugees. They've been pushed outside of Syria and are living in Jordan to the north, Lebanon to the west. And moving to Lebanon has created a whole horrible situation there with the devaluation of their currency and and the serious economic uh, collapse that they've had in, in Lebanon just in the last couple of years. It's just been, yeah, they've gone from the... A frying pan to how do they, how do you say it? From the fire to the frying pan or the other way? What's the proper way? The other way around, right? You go from the pot to the fire. Is that right? Okay. It's been that and worse for the people there. It's absolutely horrible to think of what's going on there. Some have gone to Jordan, which is a complete opposite situation than Lebanon. Jordan is actually one of the most wealthy countries in the world, but they're there. Um, when I was there a number of years ago, there was a massive, um, Refugee camp that was, I don't remember how many hundred thousand people were in. It was one of the largest refugee camps in the world at the time. And it's just, so they're in a country that's wealthy, uh, as good as, people are living there as good as we do here, and yet are forced to live in refugee camps. Horrible situation. So that's Syria. Some have gone north into Turkey also, and are doing okay there. So, Yeah, a lot of struggle and pain. And then you had the earthquake earlier this year. The one that hit in Turkey also came down into into uh, Syria. Now, and I mentioned Afghanistan, Yemen, and Syria just to connect this concept with you. And that is that all three of these countries are Arab countries, predominantly Muslim. And Muslim people typically hate Christians. In many ways, you and I could consider them our enemies. Okay? So, what should we do in this situation? Let them live in squalor like this? Is that okay? Are you okay with that? If we do that? Or is there a way we can help them and reminding ourselves of why? Why it is that we're helping them. We're helping them so that they can see who Jesus really is, right? and be able to worship him as we do. This is a picture from Bangladesh. Uh, Cam has been working in Bangladesh through our SALT microfinance program. It's a program that encourages people to increase their business, increase their their living, and so forth. Uh, This family was Muslims, and through contacts that they had, ended up in our SALT program, and entered a savings group where they, along with a group of others, would pool their savings. So each person in the group, let's say there's 20 people in this group, what they would do is they would have weekly meetings, and everyone would bring, let's say, a dollar bill. And honestly, that's some of some of their savings plans are even even 50 cents or 25 cents, whatever you can bring. But let's say a dollar bill for round figures. So everybody brings $20. And they put it into a, a box. And this box has a lock and key. It actually has several locks and several keys so that no one person can open that box by himself. It has to be opened by multiple people just for accountability. And uh, so the next week they meet again. Everybody comes together. They all bring a dollar. Now there's 40 in the kitty. Maybe when there's $100, somebody says, well, I'd like to borrow some money. I want to do something with it, and in this case, this woman eventually chose a sewing machine. And she went through, she actually went through the sewing classes before. She learned to sew, and after that said, I want to do this, I want to do this for a living, I want to improve our family's income, so she went and bought a sewing machine. The person that taught her to sew was a Christian, and slowly, carefully, and very quietly began to just talk about Jesus. And who Jesus was and why he came and how he can help you and your family in your struggles. And this woman began to trust Jesus and is today a Christian. Her husband is not. What she has done is she has increased their income by five dollars a day. So and she makes this comment. She says income is good. Um, There's a. Okay, she didn't increase it by five. She increased it to five. They're now making $5 a day compared to two. So she did more than double the income that their family had. 
Okay, now, this is insignificant to us because five dollars a day is a Starbucks coffee, right? Uh, and you know what I mean. You, we five bucks is, is nothing for us, but for this family, she more than doubled where they were on a daily basis. That's huge for someone like this, and it's why she can say that income is good. You know, picture yourself if you're in a situation with your family where you're struggling. Maybe if you could more than double. Your income for your family? Wow, I mean, that, that's pretty significant. And that's exactly where someone like this is. What's happening in Bangladesh, there's some really, really incredible things that are happening there. And there's a church that's growing out of the contacts through the SALT microfinance program that's really, really pretty to see and amazing to watch. Then you have the Ukraine situation where right now there's tremendous suffering and conflict because of this war. Cam had a base in Ukraine. Uh, we had been there prior to the war. We've been there for a number of years doing distribution. And um, in the beginning of the war, just before the war started last year, our families pulled out and came back to the States. Our Ukrainian staff continued uh, distribution in Ukraine, um, going wherever they needed to go. Some of them went through some extremely difficult situations early in the war and continue to go down close to the front line even today yet. Our staff moved back in about July of last year, 2022, and have continued to work there and feel relatively safe uh, over there. Our base is about an hour, about 50 minutes south and just a bit east from Kiev, so we're down closer to the, where the front line is on the eastern side. Not, not really close, honestly, but closer down in that direction in that area. Um, so CAM has expanded its work there, working with churches. Churches are doing a lot of evangelization, reaching out to the communities, and, and just showing they care about people along the way. I want to talk a little bit about the Widow's Care Fund, because I really think that the widow's in our world are some of the most vulnerable people that, that live and exist. Probably there are widows here, surely. Uh, you know widows. There are widows around us. And they struggle. There's something about widows and living alone that is, is hard. Life, life is difficult for those people, for sure. In India, the culture has created what they call sate. And this previous culture. So it's actually illegal now. And I will talk about it just to give you a picture of how ugly uh, the whole widowhood thing has been in India. But what happened years ago when a man died, they would build a fire. They still do this for that matter and cremate the body by by simply burning his body. Years ago, when they would do that, there were times where because a woman is now alone, and depending on why a husband died, let's say he was killed or he got sick or some died prematurely, they would often, and still do, blame the wife for this. Because, I mean, after all, if she would have taken better care of him, he wouldn't have, this wouldn't have happened. And that type of thing. She's really to blame. And not only that, but there's, like, just because he's gone and she's here now. She has this bad omen about her that we need to get rid of. And so most families, even today, will push a widow out. Now, what's typical in the Indian culture is that when a man marries, he brings his wife into their family, his family. Uh, if a daughter marries, she goes to the husband's family. That's very common. We don't do that here. We're pretty independent culture here, but... But this is common for them. So the, 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 the parents keep their sons and their sons stay together in a unit. So that when the husband dies, especially young, now here's this woman who's in their family, but she doesn't belong there because the husband's gone and, and so she's no longer needed in the family. Not only that, but she's a drain on the family. And so typically... Typically, I mean, um, nearly every part of the culture would simply push somebody like that out and, and push her away. So, sate was the process of actually burning the woman. And women in the culture would feel so absolutely uh, useless and see the process of widowhood to be so absolutely impossible 
that some of them would voluntarily jump into the fire just because and commit suicide because they saw it as there, there was no hope for them. Now, that part of the culture supposedly has been made illegal, although I'm told by people there, people who know the Indian culture, that it's still very much a part of the culture in more the remote areas of India. In many ways, this woman becomes a refugee in her own country. Her husband's income is nearly always taken from her. She's pushed out of her husband's family and pretty much loses everything that she has. Um, When I was over in 2019 in India and visited over there, I met a widow who told us that her son would come into her home and steal her food. Now, she was getting a little bit of help from the government, some rice that the government gave her every month, and she had a son who would come into her home and steal what little food the government had given her. Can you imagine? You know, hitting a person when they're so low is just about impossible. Lil and I were over a year ago, about exactly a year ago. In fact, the reason that we weren't at the auction last year was because of our trip to India. We were just coming home like the Friday or Saturday of that of that of the auction week. So a year ago. But we also had some staff from our Ohio office that were just in India about 10 days ago, came home a little over a week ago. And so this picture comes from that visit. This is a widow um, and she's standing here beside a house that was kind of slapped together after a cyclone destroyed her other house that looked about like this one. And a new house has now been built for her. And she's also been given some tools that will help her. I think a sewing machine that will help to provide for her. In this particular community, there are a number of widows. Most of the widows um, that our team that was there recently interacted with, those widows are, are widowed as a result of tigers, actually Bengal tigers killing the husbands. Some of them uh, was poisonous snakes and uh, crocodiles were the three primary reasons for widows in some of these areas. There's another Christian widow. This widow has been a widow for about 20 years and is receiving some support and assistance. We provide some food for these people. We've helped with housing. We're giving them things that they can create some livelihood uh, with. This is a group that live in a village that's actually called a widow's village. 75% of the people in this village are widows. It's quite common for widows to congregate and end up in communities where they're together. Um, And it just creates a lot of suffering among these people. Typically, they're not allowed to work. Um, They're just an unwanted kind of um, rejected group, not kind of, totally rejected group of people in their own community. It's horrible to think how some of these people live. And so we're trying to help them where we can through the contacts that we have. There's some Bible distribution to some of those widows. As hard as life is for widows in India, the situation in India actually gets one step worse when a person becomes a leper. Leprosy multiplies that widowhood problem uh, again and just makes life very, very difficult. Leprosy is quite common in India. Uh, Thousands of people uh, actually become lepers in any given year. And uh, many of them, simply all of them really, are pushed out of their homes, end up in leper camps uh, or colonies, and live with other lepers. Some of them quite young. They might get married in a colony and actually have children in a colony. Those children although they may never have leprosy, may ne- they're always considered lepers. They really are, because they were born and raised in a leper colony. It is contagious, so you have to be careful when you mingle with those. But these people have no one who ever comes to them and puts an arm around them and lets them know how much they care. Can you imagine? We don't realize how a, a gentle touch... A word of kindness, a hug from a friend or a family member means to us. These people, I mean, there are Christians in India who are working among these people, reaching out to help them. Other Christians in their church 
don't really want anything to do with their fellow Christians because they're working with lepers and they could become lepers, which means we could become lepers, which we don't want. And it makes life very, very difficult for many people in the country. So it adds to their struggle and, and really is, I think, one of the worst situations in our world, lepers in India. Christian Aid Ministries has a brand new program that I want to just introduce to you. We're calling it Child Rescue. There are more than 20 million people in the world in some form of slavery. Actually, that number, I'm pretty sure, is skewed. I can't imagine that it's not a lot more than that. We live in a world where there's a lot of people that are, that are, that are slaves. There's a lot of child labor in places like India, uh, Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, Sri Lanka, many places. China, China especially, there's a tremendous amount of child labor. Bonded labor, which is similar where people get, children get pulled into, um, they're out on the street. Somebody comes along and says, hey, listen, I can get you a job where you can make some money for your family. And they get sucked into it. They're taken to this person who actually pulls them into his house, forces them to work on a project that he has, keeps them as a slave. They never, ever are allowed to leave that house again and end up as slaves in that person's house, often given just enough so they don't die and yet can work a little bit for this man. Uh, it's a horrible type of slavery. And then there's also human trafficking that's included in this. Um, tremendous amount of suffering. Uh, some of you likely saw the movie recently about human trafficking and you know and understand the horrible situation that our world is in. Not just the world out there. This is something we face Right here in the United States, obviously. And, you know, as I have, I have pondered some of this in, in recent years, and as I scratch my head and think about the horrible suffering of women, especially, in our world today, I wonder how long can God continue to let this earth stand and allow the, the absolutely horrible things that take place in our world reading a, a book right now that uh, of a woman that suffered through the the uh, lived in Poland during the Nazi era and ended up living with her family in a sewer underground in the city for 14 months before the war ended her and her family with other people lived in a sewer underground in a city for 14 months and you just can't imagine the suffering that is out there in our world Christian Aid is right now giving support to an orphanage in Mexico and um, let me just tell a story about that before I jump to that picture there's a, an orphanage in Mexico that we're helping in Chihuahua State and and they're looking at trying to get people off the street um, women that are trafficked as well as young children that are just street children, bring them in, trying to, trying to provide some care for them, take care of them, help them, and those kinds of things. And recently they had brought uh, two boys in off the street, and these boys were part of uh, the orphanage, part of the school, learning the ropes. And one day there was uh, two men that came to the orphanage, and walked in and said that they're here to pick up their sons and named their sons. And so the orphanage director assumed it was legitimate and went to uh, the boys, brought the boys into the office. And when the boys saw these dads, they immediately said, hey, they're not our dads. These, we don't want to go with them. They're not our dads. And so the director of the orphanage didn't know what to do, so he made a call to the police station, explained the situation, and the police said, yeah, we know. But what are you going to do? And the boys were turned over to the drug cartels, and they took them back on the street. Now, could they have resisted? Well, sure, they could have resisted, and a, almost certainly a shootout would have occurred, killing who knows how many people. But those are the kind of situations that many people are involved with and worse in, in that whole trafficking situation. It's worse, a lot worse than that for sure. Christian Aid's contacts in India 
are working with street children, helping people off the street. What happens in India, you have a situation where, um, so <clears throat> for Indian, Indian families pay dowry for the daughters in their families. So if you have a daughter in your family um, and that daughter is eventually going to need to get married, you're going to have to come up with the dowry amount to pay to the husband. Seems backwards, I know, but that's the way it is in that culture. So a poor father can probably handle one daughter, maybe a second, that's going to be a stretch, but he could do it, till he has the third daughter, or when he has the third daughter, it's like an impossible situation. And in nearly every case, especially among the poor, that third daughter is just simply an unwanted child. <clears throat> and there's ways to get rid of children like that. And what will happen typically for a parent, if they have a child or children that they want to get rid of, is they'll take them, put them on a train, go with them. The mother might go with them on a train and uh, they'll go to the next station, the mother or maybe the next one. And the mother might get off and tell the children, sit tight, I'll be right back. I just want to get some food. Don't go anywhere. And so she gets off the train and never gets back on. And the train continues and continues, keeps going. Finally, the children don't know what's going on, get off, end up at a train station. It might have gone to the big city and they end up in a train station with thousands of other children uh, running the streets. And it's there in those situations that um, your traffickers are just watching for people like that. But churches are also and Christians are taking advantage of a situation like that. And watching specifically for that, what they say is you have about 24 hours. If you can get those children in 24 hours time before um, before your trafficking and slave owners get a hold of them, you can rescue children like that. This is two girls here that have been rescued in, in that way through a contact that Cam has um, in the region. So. Yeah, there's lots of needs. Uh, I haven't even talked about Israel. Cam has a base in Israel. Uh, human suffering in Israel and the Gaza Strip is, is unbelievable right now and, and about to get worse, a lot worse. Uh, Cam has been working in the region there for a number of years. We have teams that are there living in Jerusalem right now. Um, and yeah, for now, as far as we know, they're safe. Uh, but rockets have reached into Jerusalem, so they're in a, in a difficult situation, for sure. Ways that you can be involved, and I want to just emphasize this. I think uh, several comments were made about prayers for Christian Aid Ministries. We do appreciate your prayers. We need your prayers. We need your prayers so that we know how we can help people, who we should help, uh, where the needs are the greatest, how can we reach out and minister to those needs. Uh, so we need your prayers. If you're not on our mailing list, I would like to encourage you to add your name. Uh, I wonder, did the information packets get handed out? Was that done? Yep. Are they in? Okay. They got them. All right. So in those information packets should be information about how you can be added to our mailing list. If you're not, there are a number of newsletters that you can get. Let me see. Do I have a picture? Yeah, here you go. Of the different newsletters, there is the current or the... Uh, Monthly newsletter, which is on the right. And then the other four that are there are quarterly newsletters that come out, including the children's newsletter way on the left. If you have young children that are here and you'd like to receive uh, a newsletter, this is completely free of charge. And I encourage you to put your children's names on and stay informed. Um, make sure you know what's happening and how you can help uh, with Christian Aid Ministries. So thank you very much for your support. For your interest in this work, uh, thank you for the incredible amount of hard work that you put into the auction. Uh, thanks for welcoming us. We always enjoy coming here. This is such a delightful place to be, and we enjoy the food especially, but we also really appreciate the fellowship and enjoy the good-natured back and forth at the auction as well. So uh, thank you very much for everything that you do. I wonder if I can leave it open for questions. If there's anybody that has any questions about anything I said, anything that you saw in Cam's literature, um, any questions? Dwayne. You know, we talk about all the places that there is meat 
With all the needs that exist, do we need some personnel? Yeah, we, we do. We are constantly looking for people and for people who are committed to, to working for us. So anyone who goes uh, under CAM is completely um, provided for. They don't raise their own support. Our organization does it differently than many. Uh, we completely support our missionaries on the field so that if they want to stay long-term we're, we'll, we'll help make that possible. And then we have numerous opportunities in many different places. We, we have about a thousand, uh, associates. Now, many of those would be part of our rapid response team, which is here in Missouri. Um, some of our people were here yesterday at the auction. Uh, we have, um, yeah, several different centers here in the U.S. where we collect clothing. We have the main office in Ohio, the warehouse in Pennsylvania, where we, uh, package the food. Uh, and then about 10 bases internationally where we are constantly looking for people. And at each of those bases, we'd have three or four families and maybe a school teacher or two, uh, a young single fellow who's an accountant, maybe, or a warehouse manager, uh, that type of thing. Um, so we constantly look for people. I, I can't say we're short, though. I mean, I, I think God provides for us and we're able to do pretty much what we would like to do. Um, but we are always looking for people. John. Sure, sure. What's involved in being a rapid respo- in a rapid response team? Sure. So Christian Aid Ministries has a- about 25 rapid response teams in the U.S. They're state sensitive. So you have one here in Missouri. There's also one in Kansas, and one in Oklahoma, one in. Uh, some of the state, Arkansas, I know, has one. Some of the states around us, Iowa has one. But the one here in Missouri is, uh, so it's made up of uh, a committee. And, and that committee is six or eight men, maybe. And, and they make the basic decisions about the, the team. And uh, we provide them with equipment. Like we'll give them a tool trailer and maybe a bunk trailer and... We'll help them with new tools, keeping their tools updated, all of that kind of stuff. If they want to grow to a second trailer, maybe, with more tools and expand what they're doing, uh, typically they raise the funds themselves and do that for themselves. Anybody in the state can be involved. So anyone from here could call and say, hey, I want to be part of the rapid response as a volunteer. Call us when there's an event that happens. And so that if there's a flood or a tornado or... Uh, You don't get hurricanes in here, but some kind of disaster in the state, a fire maybe or something like that. They may call their rapid response uh, hotline and you would get that call then and let your people know you'd have a contact person here. You'd let that uh, your people know that there's an opportunity. And if you have one person that could go and help, great. If you have a team of 10 that could go, if you have two or three that could go for a week, uh, whatever. It's totally volunteer um, until you get involved in helping with, uh, let's see, when, when, when you help as a coordinator on a project, they do offer pay uh, for that. And if you are staying for longer term as a coordinator or a crew chief, crew leader, maybe they call it, uh, they might pay some wages if you need. But typically it's volunteer work, a little like a fire company, actually. And the rapid response, when a disaster happens, the goal is to be there within 24 to 48 hours of the disaster and and do what needs to be done. Uh, yeah, if you wanted to get involved, you'd need to call our office in Ohio and let them know that your church would have interest in setting up a contact person, somebody that we call when there's an event in Missouri or when our team is engaged or if um, there's a bigger event, let's say there's a, a huge Hurricane Harvey in Texas, for example, um, then we'll send it out to all our teams everywhere and say, hey, look, we need help. And, and volunteers will come from all over the states. Uh, that was a long project. That was that was probably one of the worst. Uh, Katrina might have been a close second. I'm not sure. But those two would have been the top. Of, and they were long projects. Eight or ten weeks we were on the ground just in cleanup. And, uh, yeah, 
So, but typically they're one or two weeks, maybe a tornado, a flood, that type of thing where the people here in Missouri, and you could go for a day, you could go for two days, a week, one guy could go, a, a band load, whatever you have. Someone else? All right. Thank you very much again for um, your support to the ministry, for hosting us here this weekend. We really do appreciate it. God bless you. Um, should I pray to close? Would that be appropriate? And then is there someone else that's going to close the service or how do you do this? A song. All right. Why don't we stand? I'll have prayer. Then I'll sit down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for the many rich blessings that you have poured out upon us. You are so good to us. You have given us so much. We don't deserve these blessings, but we know they are a gift from your hand. Please help us to be good stewards and to use wisely the things that you have entrusted to us. We know there are many in our world that suffer, that struggle, that live in extremely difficult situations. And while some of those are people who hate Christians, we know that you have provided an opportunity today in our world to be able to reach out to them and show them that we love them and that we care for them. We want to help them. And I thank you for this congregation and for the effort that was put into the auction this weekend. Will you bless them and bless them as they continue from here daily, on a daily basis, that they would learn to trust you more and follow you closer and uh, allow you to use them in other ways, in their community, in their church, and uh, in the world around them, to be able to reach out and show that they really do care about the people in their communities. And thank you for the testimony of truth and righteousness that has come from this community, from this church, and I just pray a special blessing upon each one. Go with us as we go from here. Please help us. And thank you for your mercy in saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.